The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communication Research, polled for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I interview the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, we have a show, great show today. Uh, our guest in the first half hour is Charlie Cook, one of the nation's foremost political analysts and founder of the Cook Political Report. Then in the second half hour, Dr. Rob Shapiro, uh, who is a prominent economist, uh, joins us to discuss the uh, economic uh, impacts of a possible government shutdown. Uh, but uh, before we get to uh, Charlie, our first guest, we're going to play this clip from President Joe Biden. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. That was, of course, President Biden talking about the uh, uh, Democratic performance in the 2022 midterm elections. Here today to talk about politics with us is Charlie Cook, one of the nation's foremost political analysts and the founder of the Cook Political Report. Uh, Charlie, uh, welcome back to Deadline D.C. Well, thanks, Brad. Actually, just before we went on, I realized my regular camera's not on, so you've got the wide view. Sorry about that. Anyway, well, thanks yeah. for having me on. Okay. You should get some kind of backdrop, though. Well, it, it, there is one. It's usually oh, like there this. Is. Oh, there is. Oh, I see. There's okay. A, okay. a digital single-lens reflex camera with a really tight, nice shot that somehow I didn't uh, turn on. So, anyway. Okay. Well, so, I'm sure the here. audience will take you as you are. Uh, Let's see. Uh, let's start. We haven't had you on since the midterm elections, so uh, uh, I think just about everybody was surprised uh, that uh, Dem uh, Democrats uh, lost the House, but they did it. Uh, it was a really nail scraper for the Republicans to take control of the House. Uh, Democrats actually picked up one seat in the Senate. Uh, what happened? Why did the uh, GOP uh, red, you know, why did the red tide turn into be the red mirage? Well, I, um, 
it certainly was a surprising election. I, I for one, was never using the term wave because I never thought it was I thought it was going to be a very, very challenging year for Democrats. And, you know, anytime you lose a chamber, uh, whether it's the House or the Senate, that's a bad that's a that's a bad year. But on the other hand, they picked up the other one. So it was it was very strange here. But it was really unlike any midterm election we'd ever seen, because if you think about it, every midterm election is usually about a person, usually the sitting president or an event, a circumstance, a scandal, a war, a recession, something like that. But it's never about an issue. And this was an election where I think it was about three things, uh, abortion, uh, candidates, and Trump. And while we knew from the Dobbs decision on that the abortion issue was going to be important, it turned out to be a lot more important than a lot of us thought. And I think it was probably about a third of the, of the outcome. Uh, the second third was candidates is that you had some key races where Republicans nominated some incredibly inexperienced, eccentric, uh, 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 extreme, and candidates with just a lot of personal political baggage. Um, and, uh, uh, and then finally is, is Trump, is that the candidates that were closely associated with Trump and the MAGA movement did badly. I mean, Republicans actually, I mean, they won the national popular vote, even when if you uh, adjust for uh, non, non, uh, uh, um, one candidate races, uh, the Democratic turnout was way down from 18. Republican count turnout was up, but it was a certain kind of Republican that did very, very badly. So this was uh, unlike any midterm election we had ever seen. But and finally, the, the, the fact that that Democrats uh, won, I mean, only by a handful of points among voters that somewhat disapproved the job President Biden was doing, tells you that it wasn't about Biden. And this election wasn't even about Democrats. It was about, I think, abortion candidates and Trump. Yeah, presidential elections are usually a referendum on the incumbent. Uh, but uh, in this case, as you just said, uh, part of it was uh, this became a referendum on the former president, not the uh, current president. And so that's certainly changed the complexion of the race. Yeah, I mean, I think it was about all three that, that, uh, that there was the Trump. I mean, I think there is a Trump fatigue that's setting in. No question about that. And a concern about him coming back. Uh, and people like him and sort of the election denying January 6th, accommodating all of that, um, but and abortion and candidates. So I think it was the three things together. But the one thing it wasn't about, ironically, is what it normally is about. That is a sitting a sitting president or the party in power. You know, the thing that surprised me most, uh, going back to your point about abortion, uh, when I first saw the uh, early wave of exit polls, uh, it showed that there were, al I, there were almost, I think there was a five-point difference, only a five-point difference between the voters who said they voted on the basis of inflation compared to those who said they voted on a basis of abortion. And I expected that, uh, you know, going into the election, uh, inflation was going to be the dominant issue. Now, it came in first, but it was, wasn't was very far ahead of abortion, which I think, uh, you know, bears your point. Uh, since we've uh, since we've uh, already mentioned uh, Donald Trump's name, uh, let's talk about the uh, Donald Trump's uh, bid for re-election uh, in 2024. Uh, I just saw 
uh, I think it was a new morning consult uh, exit uh, uh, national poll that showed uh, Trump with a fairly substantial lead, I think at least double digits, uh, over uh, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, it, it it's hard for me to believe, but, you know, then I'm a oh. Democrat, um, that Trump is still the darling of Republican primary voters. Uh do you think uh, that uh, somebody other than Trump on the GOP side can take him down? Well, I mean, first of all, it's a function, and 538 did a really good article about this a couple of weeks ago. It's a function of if you ask a head-to-head, Trump-DeSantis, uh, it's either even or DeSantis ahead every time. Uh, but if you ask uh, Trump versus the field uh, with, uh, you know, five, six, eight, ten, whatever Republican candidates, that's where Trump gets a big lead because the anti or the not the anti-Trump or the non-Trump vote is split umpteen different ways. And that, uh, uh, you know, it's probably more different ways than there will be candidates. But, uh, uh, I think it's a function of just sort of which way do you ask that? But I, I think there's a, I think he's got about 35, 40% of the Republican vote locked up. And and, you know, normally that would be enough for him to lose. Uh, There'd be enough opposition to lose. But under Republican delegate selection rules that are mostly either winner take all or winner take most, uh, you could get you could you know, if you keep winning primaries by, you know, with 35 percent of the vote, 40 percent of the vote, you can get all the delegates or nearly all the delegates. So um, this thing's got a long way to go. I, I, I still would frank, frankly be a little bit surprised if I'd be surprised if Trump's a Republican nominee. And I think I'd be a little surprised if Biden is the Democratic nominee, um, uh, to be honest, although it certainly looks like uh, the president's going to uh, uh, is going to announce. Uh, I would say, though, that whatever altitude and airspeed he may have picked up from the midterm election results, uh, he's probably, I think he's lost it with the documents. So he's probably back to where he was going into the midterm election. Okay. Uh, so you think uh, you'd be surprised if uh, uh, Trump was the nominee? Yeah. And that's not, that, first of all, I'm not just surprised he's going to be an active candidate a year from today. You know, that, that's part that's part of it is that he certainly hasn't looked like any candidate we've ever seen before. Um, okay. I mean, he got in, what, umpteen months ago, and he's got his first event coming up on Saturday. Uh, okay. That doesn't look like any candidate I've ever seen. Okay, we're going to go to break now uh, to let our radio audience uh, take a little rest. However, we'll be continuing with Charlie Cook and our television audience on Facebook and uh, Twitter uh, right after this very short break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is the noted national political analyst, uh, Charlie Cook. Uh, we, uh, by the way, uh, note to our radio listeners, if you'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, you can see us uh, at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. You can also see us on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon uh, front slash videos. Uh, In the uh, previous segment with Charlie, uh, we were talking about the presidential election. 
we talked about, uh, let's say that uh, Trump falters uh, in his campaign for the GOP nomination. Uh, is DeSantis the guy? Does Do any of these uh, other Republicans, you mentioned Larry Hogan, there's uh, Nikki Haley, uh, the former governor of South Carolina. Uh, there's, of course, former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, and there are probably others that I've left out. Uh, if uh, Trump's not the nominee, uh, is it going to be DeSantis? He seems to be the strong front-runner behind Trump right now. You know, the track record, Brad, of people, non-incumbents that are ahead at this stage getting the nomination is not very good. I mean, that, um, you know, we could all remember, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Phil Graham. We could all always, you know, there were uh, 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 um, Texas, uh, the former governor, Rick Perry. I mean, there were lots of people that had big leads a year out and that didn't, or two years out that didn't. Um, I, I think what you're looking at, uh, you're looking at six sitting governors, uh, not just DeSantis, but Christy Nome of uh, South Dakota, Yunkin, Virginia, Sununu, New Hampshire, Greg Abbott, Texas, Brian Kemp uh, of Georgia. Uh, several of those have uh, legislatures that they that are in, in right now that they kind of need to wait until after the legislature is out. You know, you've got the four former governors, uh, Hogan, Chris Christie, Doug Ducey, Asa Hutchison. Then you've got a slew of uh, sitting senators like Ted Cruz, Rick Scott, Tim Scott, Marco Rubio. Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton. Um, and then you've got, as said, you mentioned uh, Nikki Haley. You've got Mike Pompeo. Um, so I, I think there, there, there's potentially a pretty big field out there. But the more candidates are in, the better it is for Donald Trump if he remains in the, in the race. But, um, you know, he's a guy that's not going to go quietly. I, I don't know that he could stand the race moving on without him. But at the same time, um, I think even he has to see that he is not in the same, that he has lost a lot of altitude since August, since uh, since the FBI went into uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, he's in a, been in a very different place and uh, uh, is looking a lot weaker and did, in fact, get blamed for his share of, uh, of what happened in the midterms. Okay. Uh, let's turn to another subject. Uh, as well as the presidential race in 2024, uh, we have a full lineup of Senate races. Uh, now, it seems to me that uh, Democrats uh, now hold a 51 to 49 uh, majority in the uh, Senate, which means that the vice president gets to travel more often than she did uh, last year. Uh, but the dem the map is kind of imposing for Democrats. Uh, you have uh, three Democrats uh, who uh, won their races, uh, who in uh, uh, running for re-election that Sherrod Brown in Ohio, uh, Jill Manchin of uh, West Virginia, and uh, John Tester of Montana, I guess, uh, who are running uh, from states that Donald Trump won. Uh, you've got a lot more Democrats up, Democratic seats up than Republican seats. Uh, it looks pretty daunting for Democrats. Uh, what's your take on the uh, Senate races? Yeah, well, you know, this is the year 
uh, next year the parties will be up, uh, will be focused on candidates. I mean, on campaigns. This year it's about candidates, and I, I think for Democrats the biggest challenge is going to be keeping their incumbents running and not bailing out. Um, and for and they've already had one bailout, uh, Debbie. Stabenow. Right when you yeah with Debbie Stabenow. But the thing is, you've got. Uh, um, you know, just sort of look down. Democrats have uh, seven. They have seven incumbents up. Wait, yeah, seven incumbents up who are seventy-five years of age or older, and only four up that are under sixty. And so you've got, uh, you know, Angus King at seventy-eight, and if he runs again, I think he's a shoe-in. King got Joe Manchin, who's seventy-five. Uh, okay, well, I already mentioned Stabenow. Sherrod Brown, seventy. Um, then you get down to tester, uh, you know, Democrats need to keep these people in competitive states, keep them in the race. And conversely, Republicans need to make sure they don't make the same mistake twice of nominating a bunch of wackos, uh, which lost them some really key Senate races last time. So this year it's about candidates. Next year it'll be about campaigns. Okay. Let's, uh, take, uh, Arizona, uh, today, uh, Democratic Representative Ruben Gallego announced that uh, a Democrat announced that he would run for the Senate uh, in uh, 2024. Now, that's kind of an interesting situation uh, because you have uh, Cinema, who is uh, will run as an independent, I guess, uh, and you'll probably have a Republican candidate too, uh, Carrie Lake, who lost the gubernatorial campaign in Arizona. Or has, Blake Masters. Uh, and like masters. So how do you see that three-way dynamic working in uh, Arizona? Well, first of all, I'm not sure cinema is going to stay in, uh, okay. number one. Uh, number two, and uh, I know Galega is getting in, so uh, uh, presumably uh, uh, Chuck Schumer did not have a deal with cinema uh, to not to, to, to caucus with Democrats in order to help keeping them up at 51. But um, I'm not sure cinema is going to stay in. But at the same time, uh, Galega, he, he is much more, uh, he's a lot more progressive. I don't know that a progressive could beat a, 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 a legacy Republican, although he might be able to beat maybe a, a Kerry Lake or a Blake, Sand, a Blake, uh, Blake McMaster, uh, that uh, this is not a state for a progressive. But it's not a state for a MAGA, although the MAGA got, vote got would, is bigger than the progressive vote. But where Kelly Cinema sort of left of center, but not too far left, uh, that's about as far left as I think the state will go. So, um, you know, what's the configuration of the race, I think, is incredibly important. Now, uh, you say cinema might not run for re-election. I know so I've seen polls that showed uh, her popularity is very low. Is that is that why you think she won't run for re-election? Yeah, I mean, very rarely do I see people get incumbents get in races, stay in races that are that look darn near unwinnable. And among uh, primary Democratic primary voters, uh, uh you know, she's she's badly, badly damaged. So I, I don't know. And to be honest, I think a three way race would just simply elect Carrie Lake or or, or Blake, Blake, uh, Blake Masters. So, uh, you know, I don't know if he should stay in if it's a three way race, if it would be a three way race. And that if it looks kind of unwinnable, which it might, I don't know. 
Charlie, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have in this half hour. Thank you very much. Our guest in this half hour was Charlie Cook, uh, one of the nation's foremost political analysts. I said the foremost last time he was on, but I embarrassed him. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is the noted economist, Dr. Rob Shapiro. Uh, Before we get to our guest, though, we're going to play this clip from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, warning us about the dangers of a government shutdown. The United States is a country that since 1789 has always paid all of its bills. And the knowledge that the U.S. government can be trusted and counted on to do that um, underlies uh, the foundations really of the entire global financial system. U.S. Treasury securities are the safest investment on the planet and um, we would certainly experience at a minimum a downgrading of our debt If that happened, our borrowing costs would increase and every American would see that their borrowing costs would increase as well. On top of that, um, a failure to make payments uh, that are due, whether it's to bondholders or to Social Security recipients or to our military, would um, undoubtedly cause a recession in the U.S. economy and could cause a global financial crisis. That was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, talking about the uh, United States approaching the debt limit and the possibility of a government shutdown. Uh, Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Rob Shapiro, uh, an internationally uh, prominent economist who is the chair of uh, the economic uh, consulting firm Sonicon. Uh, Welcome back to Deadline DC, uh, Rob. Pleasure to be here, Brad. I should also note that uh, Rob was the Deputy Secretary for Commerce, Undersecretary for Commerce in the Clinton administration. Uh, And we're here to talk about all things economics uh, today. Uh, Let's start with the uh, debt limit following up on uh, the clip we played of Treasury Secretary Yellen. Will you start off explaining what the debt limit is exactly? Certainly. Um, For about 100 years, we have had a law which says that the total amount that the government can borrow is capped at a particular amount. And every year or every other year, we raise the amount. And um, let me note that Only two countries in the world have a legal debt limit. (laughs) Nobody else has it. And the reason why nobody has it, almost no one has it, is that, you know, we have already passed the uh, appropriations for 2023. That's already been done. Um, And the debt, raising the debt limit allows us to increase debt to the extent required by the spending we've already authorized and the taxes we've already authorized. Um, So it has no effect on the spending, which is 
already happened. Um, and, you know, the notion of, um, of not passing the debt limit uh, would be, that would be comparable to having no warning label on a bottle of cyanide. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact is, um, uh, the U.S. dollar and U.S. Treasury securities, which is to say the debt of the United States, um, are the underlying investments in the global economy. Those securities are held by every central bank around the world. They are held by every major bank in the world, including in the United States. And their value depends in part <clears throat> on confidence that, that your interest payment will come in on time. Um, and that is that the United States will always back up its own debt. And we back up the debt by through taxes. And the United States said, you know, we've never, never defaulted. But the, the, you know, countries occasionally default, but they usually default in the midst of a catastrophic economic uh, problem. Nobody does it voluntarily. <laughs> That's like drinking the cyanide. <laughs> and and if, we, if we were to default on the debt, which is to say, if we said you can't issue more debt um, in order to pay for the appropriations you've already approved, um, if, if that were to happen, um, the value of all those securities goes down. The value of the dollar plummets. Um, the U.S. as seen as the uh, refuge for um, uh, where all capital goes when there are problems in other countries. That's impaired. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an old associate and friend of Janet Yellen's, who is one of the greatest economists in America. And she's, of course, absolutely right. Uh, it would, why would it cause a recession? It would cause a recession because as, as the interest rate rises on those securities, as people say, you're going to have to pay me a lot more to hold this security because you've defaulted on other securities. Um, uh, interest rates go up on government securities, and that, that is uh, transferred to every other interest rate in the economy. Uh, mortgage rates would you know, probably go to 12 or 13 or 15 percent. Um, it would be, it's a, it's a the kind of catastrophe that no one who has any sense would voluntarily choose, which is to say the Republican majority in the House is devoid of sense. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, becoming, you know, even they've been in office now for only a few weeks, that's becoming increasingly obvious to Americans. Let me ask you this question. Uh, one of the... Uh, 
accomplishments of the Biden administration is that we've how many gains, how many jobs have we picked up since uh, uh, Joe Biden became president? Ten and a half million. Ten and a half million. And in less than two years. Yeah. And how many of those jobs would disappear if we defaulted on the debt or the government? Um, If we if we defaulted on the debt and it persisted for more than a couple days, um, you, you would see a very deep recession that would probably I think you would see something quite close to what we saw in 2020 when employment collapsed. And um, in that case, the unemployment rate actually reportedly went to 14 percent. It actually went to about 18 percent. It was very hard to measure for various reasons during the pandemic. So 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 unemployment going from 3.5 percent to about 18 or 20 percent is the likely result if we defaulted and uh, it persisted for any period of time. Okay, uh, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to let me ask you one more question before we break. Um, do you think Joe Biden has got enough credit for the economic recovery? Uh, most Americans think the economy's in bad shape. Most people give the president a negative job rating on dealing with the economy. Uh, is that fair or unfair? No, it's always been unfair. And look, I you know I. I admire the Biden administration uh, greatly for its remarkable legislative achievements. Um, uh, But they got the worst messaging operation I've ever seen. The fact is, you know, I was writing about this at the end of 2021, and I said, look, look at the numbers. This is a boom. We we are we are right now in the Biden. Yeah, I remember we you talked about that on the show about the time you were there. We're going to go to take a quick break to bring back uh, to uh, let out our uh, radio listeners, but we'll be right back uh, with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Dr. Robert Shapiro, noted economist and chairman of Sonicon. Sonicon. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I have a few thoughts here. Um, the new Republican majority in the House had barely settled in when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, we played her clip before, lobbed a hand grenade into the GOP caucus. Uh, She announced that the U.S. could default on its debt unless the government takes extraordinary steps and Congress raises the national debt limit. The urgent need for action is a serious challenge to the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, and his renegade band of institutional anarchists in the GOP House of Horrors. The big question now is whether House Republicans are ready to rumble with the Democrat in the White House and the Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. Members of the House majority need to decide whether they're skilled legislators or simply uh, agitators. The early returns indicate the caucus, Republican caucus of chaos is not ready for prime time. If the battle for the federal debt limit is anything like McCarthy's battle for the gavel, 
the economy and nation are in grave danger. His 15 ballots struggled to become speaker set the stage for an imminent fight over the doubt limit. To secure the position, he made concessions to, far, to the far-right Freedom Caucus that will limit the speaker's power and his ability to strike a deal with Democrats to keep the federal government up and running. His concessions make it easier for the GOP Chaos Caucus to remove him as speaker and install several far-right members on key committees. The prospect of a vote to remove McCarthy as speaker during a government shutdown crisis should keep him awake at nights. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Robert Shapiro talking about the economy. Uh, you know, let me ask you about this whole deal about Social Security. Apparently, many Republicans are not prepared uh, to uh avoid a government shutdown or want to force a government shutdown to uh, force uh, some sort of uh, spending cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Could you comment on that, Rob? Sure. It's like somebody <coughs> drinking cyanide and then having a strychnine chaser. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, gonna <clears throat> we're going to cause enormous unemployment and we're going to do it in the cause of taking money away from older people um, who absolutely depend on it. You know, this is retirement income. It's not as if they can work harder to make up for a cut. They can't. Uh, they're retired. So um, it's a, this is kind of a atavistic ideological drive. Um, you know, they, they think they're back in the 1930s and, and that they can undo the New Deal. Well, this is there is um, uh, Social Security is the single most popular program and the single most successful program the United States has ever had. Um, and, you know, it reduced uh, poverty in the elderly from from what would have been a rate for the elderly of about 25% to 3%. <laughs> so um, it's a, I think if they actually tried to do it, um, if the speaker um, were to advance that, that proposition, um, I think it would end his speakership uh, because I think that the moderates there are, there are 20 Republican members of Congress from districts that Joe Biden won. And these are swing districts, uh, including George Santos. And, um, uh, and I think they would break off and vote with the Democrats for a clean, uh, for a, uh, clean debt limit. Um, and that would end uh, McCarthy's speakership. Well, let me ask you this. If he didn't do it, the far right would get angry. Wouldn't that also end the speakership? <laughs> well, look, this is, you know, he his task is, is to do the job of the speaker, which is to figure out a way to bring along those who want much more or much less of something. Nancy Pelosi was the greatest speaker in this respect certainly in my lifetime. Um, and 
she had the same majority that uh, McCarthy has, four votes, four members. <coughs> Excuse me. And there were a lot of things, there, there were a lot of differences between the Progressive Caucus and the New Democrats in the House. Um, and uh, she understood how to persuade both groups, the New Democrats, to accept a little more than they were comfortable with, and the progressives to accept less than they were comfortable with, because Democrats and Nancy Pelosi believe in governing. <laughs> and that's a crazy <laughs> concept. You have to come to compromise if you're going to govern, particularly if you're going to govern with a very narrow majority. Now, it's a, um, uh, I, I would be very surprised if McCarthy has the political skill and talent to pull that off. And I believe we will have a different speaker um, before the end of the summer. Okay, well, let me ask you a question on the other side. Uh, faced with threat, you know, for some kind of concessions in, re in return for proving uh, increasing the debt limit, how do you think the Biden administration will approach this battle? Um, <laughs> I think they're going to approach it politically. And the, the right political approach here is to showcase the radicalism of the Republican Party. So I think their, their position, certainly their public position, will be a clean uh, debt limit, a debt limit without any other, raising the debt limit without any other provision. Now, uh, it may very well be that there is a compromise. Um, and rather than, you know, cutting Social Security, which they're not going to do, um, uh, there, there could be a compromise in which there was a slowdown in, in the less of an increase in defense spending and less of an increase in domestic spending. Okay. Um, and in that case, you're giving McCarthy uh, a way to save face. But I don't think it'll be part of the, part of the debt limit. Um, I think it'll be a separate bill. Uh, and um, but the White House is going to sit back for quite a while and let the Republicans rant and alienate the voters. Okay, that's makes sense to me. Uh, let me ask you about one last thing before we break. Uh, I, big issue now, it's probably going to become a more prominent issue in the next month or so, uh, is immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of talk about the influx of immigrants. Uh, I read something last week uh, that said one of the reasons we need immigration uh, is that the birth rate among Americans is so low now, uh, we're going to get in a real crunch uh, for workers uh, because essentially we're not regenerating the work, worker population. Uh, if we have too many restrictions on immigration, isn't that likely to cause the United States economic problems? Absolutely. You know, the... Immigrants and the children of immigrants accounted for 95% of the increase in the, in the workforce 
from 1990 to today, 95%. And that's again, because our birth rate, the birth rate of Native Americans um, has declined as it has in every advanced country in the world. Uh, this is true in every European country. The labor force is contracting in Italy. It's contracting in Japan. Um, we're still, and the fact that we grew at a much faster rate over the last 30 years than any country in Europe uh, is in significant part, uh, it came from two sources. We, we added more workers and we had enough capital investment for them to be productive. Um, and so again, it's, um, uh, it's not exactly drinking cyanide, but it's uh, to restrict immigration the way some okay. people want to. Rob, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today on Deadline DC. I want to thank our executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the trains run on time and, and that Deadline DC stays online. And our guest, Charlie Cook, uh, the founder of the Cook Political Report, and the noted economist, Dr. Robert Shapiro. Uh, thank you all. And I should remind you that I'm going to be on with Leslie tomorrow if you already hadn't had enough of me today. So I hope to see and hear you then.